this word in us. All right, I'm just going to dive into this. Proverbs 22:28 says, "Do not move the ancient boundary stone which your fathers have set." Okay. There are people that have gone on before us. Now, in the Old Testament times, they set up huge rocks, like you see in the picture, that would be boundary stones. They'd be landmarks. They would separate where one man's field ended, another man's field began. It was how they marked territory. And what I feel the Lord is saying today is talking about more in the area of spiritual boundaries that our spiritual fathers have set up that have gone on before us. Does this make sense? They have set up boundary stones. They've said, don't go here, but you're free to go over here. They've set up stones that said, this is what we paved the way for you so that you can find truth. And we don't need to move the boundary stones that our fathers and mothers in the faith have labored and toiled to be able to set up for us today. You all know we stand on the shoulders of our fathers of the faith. Those that have gone before us that have paved the way. We're indebted to them. We owe them so much. Ecclesiastes 10.8 says, He who digs a pit may fall into it. And a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. So in other words, there's, there's walls that are set up that you're not supposed to go through. But people that stick their hand through that wall, even though it's there to keep them and protect them, they may find themselves bit by a serpent. So there's a modern parable that was told that there was a city near a huge river. The fathers that had gone up before them, their ancestors, experienced the river's wrath as it overflowed and destroyed their homes. It would ruin some of their crops. It was so powerful, it would damage you know, some of the trees that they planted and things. And so they built a very strong wall to prevent that from being able to happen. So if the river overflowed, it would hit the wall, but it wouldn't be able to get into their village to bring destruction. Their descendants, however, they never saw the flood happen in their time. They had heard about it, but they never saw it. And their fathers had seen how the river would overflow its banks, and it would ruin the crops that they planted, and it would, it would bring so much destruction to their homes and the homes around them, and they saw um, how, how people would sit there and weep and cry because of all the damage that was done and all the work they'd done, and they had to go back and rebuild it all over again. And so they had the wisdom to put up a wall there so that their um, children and their grandchildren wouldn't have to worry about that. They could just build and prosper. But the fathers that saw the flood, they died. And the descendants grew up and they never saw the flood in their time. They were annoyed because, because the wall was inconvenient. They had to walk all the way around it to get to the river. It was somewhat ugly. It wasn't appealing. And so they decided they were going to tear down the wall. The river flooded. And even though the descendants weren't expecting this, the river did flood. And it came up and it swept away everything that they had worked so hard to build. All that their fathers, all that their grandfathers had worked so hard to build. The foolishness 
of those descendants to tear down a wall that their fathers had the wisdom to put up. Are you hearing what I'm saying tonight? Their fathers had the wisdom to know the destruction of that river. And they knew as long as that wall was there, that, those, that their descendants could live peacefully around that river and they could benefit from the water source. But whenever they foolishly tore down that wall, that same river that, that was a blessing to them became a curse and wiped them out. So what I'm trying to tell you is this. There are certain things that our fathers of the faith have paid a very dear price for us to have today. And I'm hoping I can paint a picture with that tonight as I preach. But we have got to have some boundary stones and we've got to have some walls up that we're just not going to cross. Amen? One of them is this. And I'm, I'm preaching on this because I see this creeping into the body of Christ. One of them is worldliness. Our spiritual fathers of the faith, some of you, I mean obviously before you were born, but some of you wouldn't even realize that you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, there were preachers of the gospel that, that went from city to city and they, they would stand up behind the pulpit and they had spent days in prayer and fasting and, and they, they, they lived a holy life in secret. They, they wouldn't allow evil entertainment in their lives. They wouldn't watch the filth that, that would contaminate them spiritually. They, they stayed pure before God. They, they abstained and stayed away from alcohol and sexual immorality. And they would get up and they would preach. And because of their holy life and because they, they sought God in prayer and fasting, when they preached, there was power in them and power in what they spoke. Pulpits thundered. And people would come in and they would get right with God. And they blazed the trail and they preached holiness and they lived it. And James 4, 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Did you know by some of the worldliness that people are allowing in their lives that they're becoming an enemy of God? The Bible says so. And they wonder why their prayers hit a brass heaven. They wonder why they're having difficulties in their life and it seems like God's a million miles away. Where's His presence? Well, because, sir, because, ma'am, you come to church and you feel the presence of God and you go home and and your life is full of worldliness and compromise. And the Lord looked at you and says, you're an adulterous person. Repent. Get right. The adultery with the world in your life is causing there to be like a brass heaven. It's causing an absence of God's presence and it's separating you from the Lord. He loves you. He's calling you back to Him. But we cannot move these ancient boundary stones that our fathers in the faith have put in place. I hope you hear me tonight. Because I grieve as I look out and I see right now in the church world the alcohol abuse, the immodest dress, the tattoos and piercing, the lustful behavior, the rebellion toward authority, the ungodly entertainment, the ungodly movies and music and things. It's, it's polluting God's people. It's polluting their eyes. It's polluting their mind. Let me tell you how important it is what you allow to come in your eyes and ears. And just be careful with these things. I have to be careful with this. And God's had to deal with me about stuff just like he has to deal with you about stuff. I'm going to tell you, you've got to be careful because Jesus said that your eyes is like the lamp. And if your eye is dark, everything in you is dark. Did you get that? Your eyes, the gateway of your eyes is very important to the Lord. And the music that's, that's just full of, of profanity and some of the rap music that's out there, and you guys know this, and I was just talking to someone about this the other day, it's like musical pornography. 
And you can't tell me that you're going to sit there and listen to that stuff and be okay spiritually. It's, it's defiling your temple. Okay? And then the rebellious people, here's what they say to this type of preaching. Well, that's just legalism. That's just religion. I'm free to do it. What? So you're telling me you're free to sin? You're free to live a life of worldliness and compromise and hypocrisy and pollute your temple all day long and then act like everything's okay with you and God. Yeah, you're free to do that. But don't be surprised if one day you don't make heaven because you've separated yourself from God. People are playing with the occult. And the worldly compromise has crept into the body of Christ. Listen, there's some, some foundational boundary stones that our fathers in the faith, they put up a wall and they said there is a flood out there of worldliness. And I'm telling you, our spiritual fathers in the faith put up a wall and said, do not tear down this wall. Keep the worldliness out of the church and in the world. You keep it out of your life, keep it out of your home. I just had a friend of mine they had a prophetic dream from the Lord. I posted this on Facebook. Some of you may have seen him. He saw three giants that were... He said that he saw the Lord showing darkness, greater darkness coming into the school systems. And, and he saw three giants that even Christian homes are allowing for their children. He said the first giant that he saw was, was little children playing really violent, violent, grotesque video games. And their parents were downstairs not even paying attention, just watching TV, letting them do it. And then he saw another home, and it was a. It looked like a Christian home because of some of the stuff going on, and as far as the artwork, and and he saw the kids in another room somewhere watching pornography, and he's saying to himself, "Where's the parents?" And the parents were off in another part of the house, not even paying attention to what's going on, just watching their own TV or whatever. And then he saw another um, giant that was there when where some of these children in this home were yelling and screaming at their parents and being disrespectful toward their parents, and their parents were just ignoring it and not dealing with it. And he saw three giants, and he said the Lord showed him that, that homes are allowing the children to grow up and become violent offenders because their minds are so full of violence, sexually perverted because of pornography, and disrespectful toward any authority whatsoever, which ultimately leads to God because he's the ultimate authority. And I would add to that another giant is the occult. Too many parents are allowing their kids to get all caught up in Harry Potter and in, in, in teenagers into this stupid vampire and werewolf garbage and all this. Listen, man, that, I'm telling you, it's not a joke. There really is a dark side. And, and people make a lot of it and say, well, it's, it's make-believe or something. But it's not really. There's a dark side. There's demons. There's people that are into that stuff. And, and you don't need to let your kids get brushed up against that occult garbage. There's people out there that have had a brush with the occult through playing um, something like um, Ouija boards or going to a psychic once or something like that. And, and they end up, these are true stories, they end up in church and they're manifesting a demon or they're being tormented at night with some really creepy thing. And they end up finding out in church with somebody praying for them and helping them that they open the door for that thing in their life through witchcraft and the occult that they just played with and they thought was innocent. It's not innocent. You may think it is, but the devil does not think it is. We have an obligation to cry out and warn sinners, don't we? The Bible says in Ezekiel 3.18, remember this, whenever you see Christians compromise. We have an obligation to warn people. Ezekiel 3.18, God spoke to Ezekiel and said, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And you, Ezekiel, do not warn him, and you do not speak out 
to warn the wicked from his wicked ways that he may live. That wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So in other words, God's saying when God is is seeing wickedness, he's saying for us to say something about it. If you see sin and you see wickedness, don't think that people will always take it well. As you tell somebody, hey man, that's not right, you don't need to be doing that. And they're going to, you know, they may blow up at you and, and say all these things to you. But you've done your part, it's off you now. And if they're going to do that, you know. But I'm going to tell you, there's those that will die in their sin. And no matter how much religious work they did, or how much they called themselves a Christian, they're not going to be in heaven. It's not about all this religious work. I went to church every time the church doors were open. I got so involved in the community there and I did all these things. That's not going to save you. What's going to save you is being right with God, being washed in the blood. Amen? The ancient path. Jeremiah 6.16. He said, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask. This is what he said. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your soul. But you said, we will not walk in it. So the Lord is saying, ask for the ancient path. You know what that is? That's the path that our spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith have gone before us, and they took their spiritual machete, their sword, and they cut a path, and they said, this path is the path of the Lord. Stay on this path. They put up boundary stones, and they said, that is of the world, and that's of the devil. Don't go past this boundary. They put up walls, and they said on the other side of this walls, right here that we put up is, is satanic activity. If you stick your hand through that wall, you're liable to get bit by a serpent. If you go past that wall, you're going to be in danger. Stay within the parameters of what we have established for you. We've gone before you. Stay on the path we blazed for you. And the ancient path is a path of truth and righteousness. So here's what we're called to be in this day and age. I'm seeing boundary stones being moved. I'm seeing walls being pulled down that should not be pulled down. And I'm seeing a flood, a tide of evil that is beginning to make its way into places that shouldn't be getting into and beginning to sweep away and destroy the very things that not only the people of God today have been working on, but our ancestors in the faith. People like Wesley. People like Luther. Others that have gone before us that have literally paved a way for us. And they taught us about holiness. They taught us about the way that pleases the Lord. And they set up these boundary stones. Some of those that have gone before us have literally paid with their life. They've been martyrs in the faith. But here's what God wants for Isaiah 58.12 says this. Those from among you who will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up age-old foundations... You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets with which to dwell. Let me read that again. God is wanting us now that from among us, he can find people that will rebuild the ancient ruins. Are y'all seeing this? There's things that have been laid ruin and to raise up age old foundations and be called a repairer of the breach. A breach is a hole in the wall that you're going to patch the hole. 
And you're going to restore streets in which to dwell again. You're going to restore the ancient paths so that people can walk again. I feel in my heart that's what this sermon and many other sermons like this, God's trying to use His people to repair the damage that the enemy has caused. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. How many people out there have unrepentant sin in their life? And they wonder why God isn't listening to them and why he feels so distant. But he says, and he still cries out from the scriptures, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face again, and they'll turn from their wicked ways, that right there, they'll turn from their wicked ways. I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. But revival will come when we're willing to preach and live the truth. Let me say that again. Revival will come when we are willing to preach the truth and also live the truth. Revival will come when we are willing to toil in intercession like you intercessors are doing. And we're willing to pay the price before God of a holy life, even lived in secret. That's what God's looking for. Not just people that live holy at church, but people that will live holy in secret. So here's some ancient boundary stones and walls that I believe our ancestors in the faith have put up a holy life. People are not staying true. You know what has concerned me? I've seen people, I'm going to move through this quick because I really want to get to a couple things before I close this in a real long sermon. But one of the things that concerns me is the fact that I've known people. And even back in the 90s, I I know these people. And I saw how God powerfully touched them in revival. I saw it with my own eyes. Friends with some of them. I went to revival with some of them at Brownsville and other places. And God was really moving in all of our lives very powerfully. And, and I mean, I've, I've had some spiritual battles myself and I've had some ups and downs. I've had some difficulties. But it grieves me to see that some of these people that were so powerfully touched in revival years ago are now allowing things in their life that they would not have allowed back then. And they're justifying it. And let me tell you something. We've got to stay true to the Holy Spirit and our godly convictions. Hear me. God has brought a holy conviction in some of you about things to do with what you watch in movies, things to do with the alcohol, things to do with what you're allowing in your temple, what you're allowing to come out of your mouth, the people that you hang around. You have godly, holy convictions. You know that you need to stay away from certain things and you need to be holy before God and you know that. So don't allow yourself five to ten years from now allow things in your life that you know are not right because here's what will happen. The Holy Spirit will deal with you and He'll deal with you again but if you've made up your mind that you're going to justify it and allow it He'll lift His hand and let you in, let you have what you really want. But I'm going to tell you it's dangerous. You do not want to resist the Holy Spirit. Are you hearing me? Now in an extreme case Romans 1 talks about how people were given over to a reprobate mind. And it's like they decided they knew it was wrong, but they decided they were going to go after this sin anyway. And so God just allowed them to be given completely over to it. That's kind of what I'm talking about, but not on that level. But people have made up their mind, I'm just going to do this. And the Holy Spirit convicts them. 
And then they justify it in their mind. They go, well, I feel bad about it, but I shouldn't because, you know, other people are doing it or whatever. And they justify it. And then the Holy Spirit tries to convict them again. And then they just justify and reason it away again. And finally, the Holy Spirit's like, well, that's what you really want. Okay, then you can have it. But you'll find that your life spiritually is dying. It's drying up. And if you're not careful, you could find yourself really far away from God one day. Be careful that your godly convictions God has put in you. And let me just remind you of this. If you really have a call on your life, especially a high calling, you're not going to be able to get away with things that other people will. So don't measure yourself by other people. Because there's people that go to first so-and-so over there that they simply just go to church and they, they do their thing and maybe they can get away with something. But you, you have a calling to be in God's presence and to lead people into God's presence and to win souls and to do something for God. And God's not going to allow you to get away with it. He's going he's gonna to deal with you. And he's going to say, look, you're not like everybody else. You're not going to be like everybody else. You're going to have different convictions than some of the people that you see out there because I've set you apart to do something for me. You better adhere to those convictions. Amen? All right. This is one of the things I wanted to get to. And then I'm going to go talk about going deeper in Christ. But I want to spend some time here about regarding the gospel. All right, everybody, please give me your best ear about this because I want you to hear my heart. I want you to, I'm going to take my time to explain all this, okay? I'm going to talk a little bit about the Catholic Church, but I'm talking about it for a reason. Um, Many of you know the Catholic Church got very, very off base after about 300 AD. So there was, it was called the Dark Ages. And the Catholic Church was no longer Christian at all. And they very much became a cult. And I'm going to explain all this as I go because I can show you this and this is fact. You can research this for yourself. It was so bad that God did not try to redeem the Catholic Church. That's what's interesting about it. It's usually the Lord tries to redeem. But he, he didn't even try to redeem the Catholic Church. What he did was he just split off of them altogether. And he used a man, a German monk, by the name of Martin Luther... And around 1517, he wrote out a 95 thesis. Now, Martin Luther was a brilliant man. And he, he was studying in the Catholic seminaries. And the Bible was not even allowed to the lay people. Only those that were priests and, and such could even read it. But since he was in seminary, he had the Bible there in front of him. And the Holy Spirit began to show this man that salvation is found, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, through your faith in Jesus Christ alone. This was not at all and is not at all what the Catholic Church believes to this day. And they did not believe it then at all. People that believed that way were labeled heretics and were burned alive at the stake. John Huss was one of them. Is one of my heroes in the faith. I cannot even begin to imagine how many hundreds of thousands of people that were true Christians that the Catholic Church martyred during the Dark Ages. Okay, There's a lot of blood on the hands of that, that cult. But Martin Luther, God had moved upon him. And he, he was so just disgusted at what he saw that people 
could go and they could take money and they could go to um, you know their priest or whatever and give them money and they basically could buy the right with money they could buy the right to go out and sin so let me give you an example let's say that there's a guy that's a, a Catholic and he says you know I'm married but I see this lady over here and he's wanting to have an affair and so he says well I'll just go to my priest and I'll just pay for this indulgence and so he goes to his priest say, how much does it cost for me to go have this affair? And then he'll write, you know, get the money together and give it to him. And then he'll go out and he feels that because he went there and he paid for that indulgence, that God is winking at that sin and is just going to let it go. Because the Catholic Church told him so. And Martin Luther was seeing this. And he was seeing all of what they called the relics. Relics were things that were superstitious that the Catholic Church, a lot of people would accumulate these relics, you know, a clipping of Peter's toenail that made it through the centuries. I'm just kidding, but whatever relic it was. And, and they, would, they would collect these things and they would believe that this brought them some kind of good fortune. And, and listen, I'm going to go through what they believe, but it's, it's really bad. And Martin Luther saw all the idolatry and the weirdness that was out there. And it so grieved his heart that he began to write out this 95 thesis and put together all the things that he had a problem with in the Catholic Church and nailed it to the door in Wittenberg. And this started the Protestant Reformation. And I'm going to tell you something. That he, he was a spiritual father in the faith. I want you all to hear me. He's a spiritual father in the faith that literally faced the possibility of being burned alive how would you like to do something tonight that you know that in a week from now you could find yourself being burned alive for in front of people? He knew that he very well could die. But he had the guts to still do it because he knew that it was right and he knew it was the right thing to do. And God was with him and God protected him. But he, he really drew a line in the sand and said, we're just not going to continue with this Catholic church. So I'm going to give you some things that they believe in and why I'm concerned. It started with the New Age. I began to see the body of Christ getting comfortable in the, in the emerging church. They began to get comfortable with New Age. They began to get comfortable with yoga. Amen? And people start allowing more New Age and yoga things and meditation and weirdness come in. And they seem to be okay with it. They just slap some lipstick on it of... I'm going to listen to some Bethel worship while I do my yoga, you know. And uh, they would act like everything's okay. But it's an unholy mixture, and I don't know if the people out there are going to listen or not, but it, it's demonic and satanic, and it's got its roots in Hinduism, etc. But anyway, and they begin to allow that. And then, and then you begin to see Chrislam. And you begin to see where people started allowing... People started to allow um, Islam and Christianity to somehow start coming together. The Quran, the Bible, and they said it's under the veneer of, well, we all worship the same God, which we don't. And Islam is definitely not of God. And another thing, which I'm not saying it's the only thing, but I'm seeing now that they're beginning to want to merge some with Catholicism. And what I'm seeing is this. There's an ancient boundary stone that our fathers in the faith put up 
and said, we're not going to go there. Are you hearing me? They built a wall and they said, do not cross over there. And I'm seeing now that people seem comfortable with and okay with beginning to blend back in with Catholicism. Let me show you some things. I've already preached on this, but do you guys remember the Marian apparitions where supposedly the Virgin Mary was appearing and millions of people are flocking to worship Mary and and this being, this entity that is appearing is saying that it is a co-redemptrix, that there's salvation through her just as much as Christ. And it's just very weird. And the Catholic Church has totally sanctioned this. Anyway, let me give you some things. Throughout the centuries of Rome's existence, the popes have regularly claimed to be divine. As the supposed successor of Peter, the pope claims infallibility. Are you hearing me? No man is infallible but Jesus, but the, the popes have claimed to be infallible. And they, their position of being like God on earth, the God's representative on earth. They, they believe that they've had the ability to judge and excommunicate angels. Cardinal Sarto, who became Pope Pius X, said this, The Pope represents Jesus Christ himself. Now, they view the Pope as being like God in the flesh almost, really. They view him as being the, the supreme um, representative of Jesus Christ on the earth. And here's the problem. Here's one of the problems. Number one, the Pope is a sinful man just like everybody else that needs salvation in Jesus Christ. He's not infallible. And the second problem is this. You're not supposed to make an idol out of anything or anybody. And these people, listen to me, there's people that worship the Pope, not, not the God of the Pope, the Pope. And they'll bow down pretty much to him and worship him and, and pray to him and all this stuff. It's very weird. And there's nothing about it that's of God. And um, you don't see that type of thing in the New Testament anyway, where there's some supreme Pope-like figure. And you know what's interesting is I read in time prophecy and I study this out. First Timothy 4.1 says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And it says they have a seared conscience. And it says that they forbid people to marry. What do you think of when you first think of the Catholic Church? That they forbid their priests to marry. Isn't that something? And did you know also that it is completely unbiblical to forbid leadership to marry? And they wonder why they're having the, the scandals and things they're having. But it's, un, it's unbiblical. Paul said that there's some... Or Jesus said there's some that could be like eunuchs of the faith. That's a grace straight from God. But you don't expect all these people that they just have to be celibate to be in the ministry. That's not the way it works. And that's unbiblical, very much so. There's been an ecumenical movement that the Catholic Church has been spearheading for some time. Let me explain that. The popes, the last couple popes for sure, and it seems to be this one as well, have been working very diligently to find common ground where they can bring together Catholicism and they can bring together Buddhism, Hinduism, all these other religions. This Pope just had um, somebody from the Islamic clergy come in and pray at the Vatican. So they're trying to blend all these different religions together. And it's interesting because 
they they call it like the mother church and and from what i understand the statement is that people need to return back to the mother church now if you now listen if you read the book of revelation chapter 17 it talks about the whore of babylon that's the mother of all harlots now isn't it interesting to, that it would be called that Did you know, I'm just going to tell you what they believed. You can do with it, whatever. But did you know that Martin Luther and our spiritual fathers and mothers of the faith that brought the Reformation, did you know that they believed that the Roman Catholic Church was going to be um, the last day Antichrist system from which the false prophet and the Antichrist and all that would emerge? That they believed that the seven heads on the beast of Revelation was the seven hills of Rome. I'm just telling you what they believed. But they lived in a time when the Roman Catholic Church had supreme rule over the whole world. There was the kings, the presidents were afraid of the Pope and were afraid of the Roman Catholic Church because the Pope could just say, well, if you don't do what I say the way I say it, I'm going to label you a heretic and then everybody will turn against you and we could possibly even burn you at the stake. And so everybody was scared of them. That's how they controlled everybody. And there was a weird system in place. Things like the Knights Templar and this this military the Pope had to be able to send out his own little private army to go on these crusades. And if people didn't convert to Catholicism, they were were murdered. Are y'all hearing me? You ought to research what the Jesuits really are. And if I understand it correctly, this Pope is a Jesuit. All right, but here's, let me just read it real quick. Number one, praying to the dead was sanctioned in the Catholic Church in 300 AD and making the sign of the cross. The worship of angels and dead saints in 375 and the use of images in worship. It grieves me today to see for so many years I've seen popes come in and bow down to a statue of Mary. And they'll bow down prostrate to that statue and kiss that thing. How clear can the Bible be on a, on a subject? Don't make other gods. Don't make a graven image. Don't bow down and worship the graven image. And they come in and they're going to physically take their body and bow to it and kiss it like that. All right. Around 431, just follow me, I'm almost done with this. The beginning of the exaltation of Mary, the term Mother of God, applied at Council of Ephesus in 431. Mary began to be worshipped and venerated and described as the Mother of God. The doctrine of purgatory was made up in 593 by the Catholic Church. There is no purgatory. Listen, let's just tell it like it is. Purgatory, that teaching, has made the Catholic Church a lot of money. Because all they got to do is just tell people, hey, your dead ancestors are in purgatory. But you know what? If you'll sell your estate, give us tens of thousands of dollars, we'll do a little ritual for you and get them out of purgatory for you. I mean, there's nothing corrupt about that. Now listen to this one. Prayers to Mary and dead saints was sanctioned by the Catholic Church in 600 AD. 
Now I want you to think about this for a minute. I'm not talking about praying to the God of so-and-so. No, I'm talking about, you know, Saint so-and-so, that they will pray to that dead person and believe him to heal them. And there have been Catholic people, because of all the weirdness going on, it becomes a cult, it becomes paranormal, it becomes pagan, it becomes weird, and now you've got these, they're praying to the dead, they're doing things like necromancy, and you've got these weird spirits circulating. There's been people that's got stories of where they, you know, some dead saint came to them in the middle of the night, and now they're healed. That dead saint is either in heaven with Jesus if he got saved and knew the Lord or he's in hell with the devil, but he's not floating around your hospital room. The worship of the cross, images, and relics was sanctioned in 786. This is what ticked off Martin Luther because he was seeing people bow down and worship relics. Okay, just picture that. You know, I set the microphone out here. I say, this is a holy microphone. I sanction this microphone. And so everybody now, we all decide we're going to bow down to the microphone. And people are going to come up and kiss the microphone. And you know, and it, come on, man. But that's not any different than what they're doing. It's idols. There's a bunch. Of, I'm skipping. In some of this because it's so long. Canonization of dead saints, the celibacy of the priesthood, the rosary, all these things were added you know, around 1000 AD. Indulgences, remember me telling you they could pay money to go sin? That was um, sanctioned in, in 1190 AD. Now here's what I want you to hear transubstantiation. In 1215 AD, the Catholic Church believed and they sanctioned that whenever you take communion, that the, the actual bread that's used becomes Jesus Christ's flesh, literally. And the wine that's used becomes his blood, literally. This isn't figurative. They believe that it's literal flesh, literal blood. Let me tell you a creepy story about this. Bill Schneblin was a Catholic priest at the same time he was a practicing witch and a practicing Satanist. He was a card-holding member of the Church of Satan. But here's what happened. He went to Catholic seminary and his professor told him that Jesus was a master occultist and if you wanted to be like Jesus, you needed to learn the arts of the occult. So that began his extensive journey into the occult right there. And so... As he went through all these different things, I mean, the guy, if you've heard his story, and I shared it with the church in the past, but the guy is a little bit of everything. I mean, he was a druid. I mean, he had an extensive occult background. But he was a practicing Catholic priest. 
and he would hold mass at his house. Now, here's the creepy story. They believed in that transubstantiation where the literal flesh and blood, okay, so they take the bread and the wine, and as a Catholic priest, he has to stand there with his hands over it, and he performs mass, and he blesses that thing. Well, they, they, he did that, and they took it, and he noticed that they spilled some, and he looked at it, and this was documented in his um, Blood on the Doorpost book, and also, I believe, in his, his uh, DVD series that he did, he, telling about his background, but he said that he had spilled some of that on this cloth, and he noticed that it did not look anything like wine at all. And it was supposed to be wine. It looked like blood. You know how blood has more of a brown stain? It looked like that. And it kind of, he was thinking, this is really weird. And so what he did was he happened to have a friend that was in a lab. He didn't tell the friend what it was or why he was anything. He just gave it to him and said, do me a favor. Don't ask any questions. Just simply run a test on this and tell me what it is. The friend comes back and he, he doesn't know the story or anything. He just gives to him and said, it's... It's uh, some kind of a blood from an unknown source, but we don't know what it's from. So the lab test came back that that wine was some kind of weird blood from an unknown source. Now that's just weird. All right. And here's the thing about this transubstantiation, whatever they call it. They, because they believe that the wafer is the actual body of Jesus Christ. They worship the wafer. Now, I want you to picture this because this goes on all the time. You've seen it and didn't know what it was. They put it in a box. The bread's called the host. The box is called a Eucharist, right? Am I correct? Okay. They put it in the Eucharist. It's some kind of a thing that they carry down the aisle and they're burning incense beside it. The people are worshiping the bread because they think it's Jesus okay I'm serious they're worshiping the cookie okay (laughs) and listen I'm not trying to make fun because these people are taught that you know if you're taught something your whole life that's what they know I'm not making fun of them I feel sorry my heart goes out to them I love Catholic people but I have a big problem with the Vatican I have a big problem with their doctrine okay I have a big problem with it but um, they're teaching their people all forms of idolatry. They're teaching them to worship the piece of bread. And they believe that it's really, truly the body of the Lord. They believe it's the Lord. And so the priest is up there and he does his thing over that communion. And then they give it to him. And they believe that as they eat this, they're eating the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Now what you got to understand is that there was groups of people through history that took a stand against this type of doctrine when it came in. And they said that is not the physical flesh of Jesus Christ and we should not be worshiping the piece of bread. And you know what the Catholic Church did to him? They killed him. And they, they, the Catholic Church so hated people that like John Wycliffe, for example, that had the nerve to believe that every Christian out there should be able to read the Bible for themselves. The Catholic Church hated that. They couldn't get to Wycliffe. God protected that man. But he he wrote the Bible in the common language. He paved the way for the King James Version. He paved the way, okay? The Catholic Church so hated that man that after he was dead for over, I believe it was over 100 years, they came and they dug up the man's bones 
And they burned him, and they pronounced a curse over him, anathema. That's how much they hated that man for what he did. And you know what his crime was? He translated the Bible into a common language for the people. I'm just telling you the truth of history. I'm just putting it out there. You can look this up for yourself. And the adoration, the worship of the cookie, remember? That was sanctioned in 1220. The cup was forbidden from laity in 1414. Purgatory proclaimed as dogma. It is a fact in 1439. I could go on and on. But this is the the ones I really wanted to get to because this is what I want you to understand why I'm talking about this. If the Catholic Church today had come in and said, listen, we've had about a thousand years of being way off. Okay, We've shed innocent blood. We've martyred true Christians. We've believed absolutely horrible doctrine. We're asking forgiveness. We've asked God to forgive us. Please forgive us. We're changing what we believe. And if they had that type of attitude, I'd be totally fine with that. I praise God. Amen. But the opposite is true. They, they brag that they have not changed a bit. Okay? Now listen. They said... Whenever Martin Luther split off and he believed, this is what Martin Luther believed. This was the whole big deal. The Catholic Church believed and still believes to this day that you cannot be saved apart from the Catholic Church. They believe that you have to be confirmed Catholic. In other words, the church saves you. Okay, Martin Luther said that's bogus. I've read it. It's in the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that you are saved through Christ alone. That was the big split right there. That was where they parted ways. Because the Catholic Church drug Luther in front of um, their council and demanded that he recant what he was teaching. And he said, I cannot recant that. That's what the Bible says. They demanded him to recant it. And they went after him. They went after his life. But God protected him. But... um, but for the grace of God, they would have killed him, burned every one of his books, and killed every one of his followers. All right. They stated, Martin Luther split off in 1517. In 1545, at the Council of Trent, they stated emphatically that they denied every doctrine of the Reformation from sola scriptura to salvation by grace through faith alone. In other words, they officially and formally from the highest order of the Catholic Church have denied that the Bible is the only inspired word of God, sola scriptura, and that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. They deny that. Officially. Okay. They pronounced 125 anathemas, which is a curse do you remember in the scripture where Paul said, give somebody over to the devil for the destruction of their flesh? So there's, okay. They believe that they have the ability to give somebody to the devil and curse them to eternal damnation and all that. So they pronounced 125 anathemas, eternal damnation, a curse, upon anyone believing what evangelicals believe and preach today. They would label me getting up here and saying, you can only be saved through Jesus Christ alone. His blood. That's it. No church saves you. Jesus saves you. They would have labeled me in those days a heretic and tried to kill me and burn me alive. Get up any of books I've written and burn them and find any of my followers and kill them. They believe in 1854... 
that Mary was an immaculate conception. In other words, she was born without sin. That's why they worship her. They believe that she's sinless like Jesus. All right, just a few more. They confirmed, y'all please hear me with this. They confirmed this, the word unum sanctum. And what that means is this. There's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. That's what the Catholic Church believes. And that's what they have confirmed in their teachings. They also believe that, well, I'm going to skip some of this. It takes too long. But let me get down to this last one here. Mary was proclaimed the mother of the Roman Catholic Church. They reaffirmed the infallibility of the Pope. They've reaffirmed the Roman Catholic doctrine that I've taught you before, right before this. They reaffirmed all of this in 1965, and they did not deny any of it. So what I'm trying to tell you is this. They haven't changed a bit. And when this last Pope got up and said... It's dangerous for somebody to believe that they can be saved outside the church. He's, he, it sounds really good to the ignorant that, oh, he's just saying that you, you need to be in church. When you know what the Catholic Church officially believes for the last thousand years, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's dangerous. He's trying to say it in a way. It's dangerous for you to believe that you can be saved outside the Catholic Church. In other words, he's, he's saying the same old stuff that they've been saying all along. Now, here's what concerns me, because I'm talking about ancient boundary stones being moved. I'm concerned because I'm seeing right now, there's people that have a prophetic, quote, prophetic ministry and different things that are wanting to connect in, in, with this Pope. This same Pope is trying to connect with Islamic clerics. The Pope right before him and the Pope before him were trying to connect with all these different religions. And there's an ancient boundary stone that our spiritual fathers and mothers of the faith put up and said, these people do not believe like we do. Do not get unequally yoked with this. I'm just telling you, that's where I stand with them. There's no backing down. Until somebody like this Pope gets up and says what I said earlier, we have sinned in so many ways. We believe now Jesus is the only way to heaven. You don't have to come to a Catholic church to be saved. It's through Christ alone, His shed blood. Until I hear those words out of somebody's mouth like a Pope, I'm not connecting with them. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Now, the um, I love Catholic people. Now, there's people in here, we may do some things, and some precious Catholic people come and praise God. I'll pray for them, love them. You know, and I believe that, I believe that there's some really wonderful Catholic people that have found Jesus, that know the Lord, that go to a Catholic church. But my advice to them would be, you need to go to a good church that's going to teach you the Bible. Okay? And I would say that the same, if, if somebody that was going to a Mormon church, but somehow they'd accepted Jesus Christ, they believed, but they were, I would say, look, man, you need to get out of that and go somewhere that teaches you the Bible. Teaches the Word of God. Okay? These are cults. They don't believe like we do. Y'all hear my heart in this? Alright. Here's a few more things. Regarding our Pentecostal heritage. I'm going to tell you, there's a, ba- there's a big boundary stone here. Did you know 
This, this really stays with me, that whenever Azusa Street Revival broke out and William Seymour went after God with all of his heart and the power of the Holy Spirit came, and, and, and I knew that it started with Charles Parham in Topeka, Kansas, but now it's beginning to, all these people are getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and they're going all over the world spreading Pentecost. But did you know that while this was going on, that our Pentecostal forefathers, and even to this day, there was a tremendous persecution against them? Did you know that some of them lost their jobs because they were Pentecostal? And they were labeled weirdos. And that they had to suffer. And I'm telling you, it grieves me now to see, even in Pentecostal denominations, that they've tried to relegate the Holy Spirit to some back room somewhere. And they don't want people speaking in tongues and things because it might offend somebody. And, and they don't have people come down anymore and pray for them to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And listen, our spiritual fathers in the faith, they paid too dear of a price to put that boundary stone there for us to be moving it now. They paid way too dear for price. It's not our place. We need to humble ourselves and realize the price that they paid so that we could have Pentecost today. The price that they paid in prayer and fasting for revival to break out in their generation so that we could reap it in our generation. And I'm not ashamed of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not ashamed of our Pentecostal heritage. Amen? Now, regarding sound doctrine, I, t- I dealt with this with the Deception and Mixture series. It grieves me to see that people are putting experience above the Scriptures. I love experience. I've got some powerful experiences with God. But it's all subject to the Word. Okay? And we've got to have that Word of God be like an anchor in our lives. That is keeping us on track. That is what our spiritual fathers in the faith. Listen, those people like Wycliffe and others that, that, that wrote the Geneva Bible and ultimately the King James Version, you got to understand, they risked their lives to do this. They risked their lives. And they, they, many of them died trying to do it, but they, they finally you know, blazed a trail for us to be able to have the Scriptures today. It's because of them that you're holding a Bible tonight. And, you know, the Catholic Church, honestly, they sought to kill every single one of them for doing that. But it's still God watched over His Word. And we have it today. And I'm telling you, there's a boundary stone there. That our fathers in the faith are saying, stick with the Word. Don't get outside the Scriptures and start reading some other supposed holy books. Don't put your experiences or other people's experiences above the Word of God. Everything has to be submitted under the Word. You know why that we have a lot of the doctrines we do? is because those people saw what was going on in the Catholic Church. For example, the Catholic Church believes that their hierarchy has authority over the Bible. Meaning that they can change the Scriptures. And meaning that they can set doctrine in place that is totally against the Word of God. But they have authority over the Word. They believe that. And so our spiritual fathers in the faith said, no, no, no. We're going to submit ourselves under the Word of God. We're going to line things up with the Word of God and what it says. We're not going to set ourselves above it. But here's some sound doctrine. Number one, the Bible is the only inspired Word of God. Number two, there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Number three, the deity of the sinless Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only man that ever lived that was sinless. Did y'all know that? The blessed hope, which is the rapture of the church. You're seeing that boundary stone being moved. 
the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Meaning this, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. The Holy Spirit has to live in you. There's got to be a conversion experience, a regeneration by the Holy Spirit. That boundary stone's being removed. People are saying, well, just say this little prayer with me. Another boundary stone is the baptism in the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace. That's Pentecostal doctrine. I want you to hear this. When you get born again, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He's with you. Okay? But there's a baptism in the Holy Spirit that is a second work of grace where the, where the Jesus Christ will baptize you in the Holy Spirit in fire and you'll be clothed with power. There's a prayer language. There's, those are two different things. But see, that boundary stone, is the, the enemy's trying to move that. Okay? The next one is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. What happened to that? Did you know William Seymour taught that the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, they called that the sanctifying work of the Spirit. They believed that the Holy Spirit so filled you that you were being sanctified and changed by God. They believed that as you were baptized in the Holy Spirit that you were going to be a different person. They believed the sin you used to be comfortable with, you're not going to be comfortable with anymore. They called it a sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's a boundary stone. And of course, the resurrection of the dead. And I could go on, but there's basically around 16 bullet points that our Pentecostal fathers in the faith have established for us today that we need to be slow. Listen, we've got to be slow and careful about moving boundary stones that our ancestors put in place. You don't do it frivolously. It's just like the people that that tore down that wall that their fathers put in place just because it was annoying to them. It was in their way and they, they didn't understand the purpose for it because they didn't see the flood in their generation. But once they tore down the wall, then the flood came. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about in the natural. Then I'm going to close with going deeper in Christ. But listen, what about the Constitution of the United States of America? Let's talk about that for a minute. Okay? This is just an example in the natural to prove my point. But the fathers of this nation had the wisdom to look at England and to see the tyranny there and to see what people had to go through. And they had the wisdom to come over here and to establish a constitution that gave the power to the people and that removed it from those that want tyranny. And they put things in place to safeguard it. And now you're seeing people in this generation that want to move that ancient boundary stone that was set up by the fathers, the founding fathers of this nation. There's no wisdom in it. The founding fathers had the wisdom to put a boundary stone there. And you've got people now that have no wisdom at all that are wanting to move that. That's an example in the natural, what I'm trying to tell you. In the spiritual, our our founding fathers of the faith had put boundary stones and they said, Don't move this stone. There's people that have died and shed their blood. There's people that have prayed and fasted. There's people that have fought the devil. There's people that have gone through hell on earth to put this stone. And we're telling you, don't move this stone. And then you several generations pass and somebody goes, hey, we need to move that stupid stone. It's outdated. Alright, here's how I want to close this. about going deeper in Christ. I believe... I've been dealing with the healing series, okay? And I believe that there's an inner healing a lot of times that has to do with physical healing. And I want to pray for people tonight. Did you know that a lot of times the, the inner healing of the spirit and soul, the broken heart, the trauma, 
things people have been through, did you know that a lot of times that has to do with their physical health? I've told this story before, but my wife and I used to watch a show where this guy, some reality show this guy would go and he would find family members that had been estranged from one another and bring them back together. And there was two different cases. I'll give you one, but they're the same. This woman had a broken heart. She had, had she'd been estranged from her daughter and, and um, she had developed cancer and she was actually in stage four cancer. She's about to die. And she wanted to see her daughter before she died, so this guy located and brought him back. And, and the daughter told her, once she explained the circumstance, the daughter told her, I forgive you, I'm totally fine with things, I don't hate you. And, and it brought such a healing emotionally to this woman. Did you know that this is not a Christian, and nobody prayed for this woman? But did you know that her cancer went into remission? Just because her heart was healed. So whenever you have that happening with people that don't even know the Lord, how much more so is that going to happen in Christians who have the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of prayer? What it is is that there's a lot of times that people's broken hearts and trauma and things they've been through in life affect their physical health. So let me give you a few things here. Number one, forgiveness. That's where it all starts. Forgiveness means you don't retain it anymore. Did you know that there's two laws? There's the law of justice and the law of grace. If you seek justice, you say, I want justice against this person. They wronged me. They should pay. And you retain their sins against them. You don't forgive them. You want justice. Then the devil's able to go and accuse you to God and say, look, this person hasn't forgiven them. And so therefore, I want justice in their life. And God has to allow the devil to come in like a tormentor. That's why Jesus taught the parable and said about the man, the king forgave him his debt and the man went out and choked a guy over a couple dollars. And so the king got mad, threw him in prison. He said, you will remain in prison and give it over to the tormentors until all is paid. There's a spiritual prison and there's a torment attached to unforgiveness. So here's the law of grace. This person wronged me. They do not deserve my forgiveness. They don't. But I'm going to forgive them anyway. Because I don't deserve God's forgiveness. But he forgave me anyway. The whole thing about forgiveness goes back to this. God is trying to allow us to go through some of the sufferings he's been through. It's becoming more like Jesus. That's the whole thing. You say, why do I have to keep getting burned? Why have things happened to me in life? Because you're being conformed to the image of Christ. And as you get hurt and you forgive... You're beginning to understand how God is hurt, but yet He forgives. You're becoming more like Him. Is this making sense to you? God's softening your heart. He's giving you a love for people. He's giving you more of His perspective about things in life. So number one, it's a choice that I'm, going, yeah, I'm not going to demand justice. This person does not deserve my forgiveness, but I don't deserve God's. So therefore, I'm just simply going to forgive them and let them go. And as long as you demand justice... They should pay for what it is. As long as you demand justice and you remain in this realm of justice, you're going to remain in the realm that the devil traffics and you're going to remain tormented. But once you forgive, now you're able for God to take you out of the realm of justice into the realm of grace where you're above all of that. It's a place where you're forgiven and you forgive others and it's a place that the enemy cannot traffic. It's the realm of grace. 
You extend grace to people, and God extends grace to you. And the devil's not able to get to you because of God's grace. Is this making sense? So in dealing with forgiveness, number one, it's a choice. You don't retain it against them anymore. You say, Lord, I know they wronged me. They don't deserve my forgiveness, but I forgive them anyway. I let it go. I just let it go. It's over. That's a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. You may not feel like it, but you still do it. The next thing is you've got to deal with resentment. You've got to let God give you a love for the person and to see them with his eyes and to get all that resentment out of you. The quicker you forgive, the easier it is. Because there's times that I held on to unforgiveness and it took me a long time to get on the other side of it. There's other times that I forgave real quick and it was real easy. So I've learned just to forgive real quick. Okay, don't go to bed okay, angry. Yeah, you're supposed to forgive that day. If you'll do that, if you just forgive immediately, there'll never be a root of bitterness God has to get out of you. Okay, but you got to let the Lord get all that resentment out of you. And the next one is revenge. You cannot seek revenge. (laughs) I will get them. You know, you can't do that. God said it is mine to avenge. Okay, so any type of revenge, getting even, I'm going to I'm going to do something to get them back. All that stuff that has got to go. I forgive them. I'm not going to have any resentment in my heart, and I'm not going to seek revenge. And here's the fourth and the most difficult of all. You no longer remember it. Do you want God to forgive you of your sins and not continually remember it? Do you want Him just to forget about it? Anybody feel that way other than me? All right. Do you want God to forgive you and no longer remember it against you? You need to not remember it either. And what that means is you're just going to have to renew your mind and not dwell on it. Because see, a hurt person has a tendency to keep rehearsing it over and over in their mind. Like a broken record, it is throughout their day, they keep doing it over and over. You've got to just get rid of all that and just forget about it. Just let it go. Okay? Mark eleven twenty five. whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you for your transgressions. Did you know that unforgiveness can hinder your prayer life? It can hinder your spiritual growth. It can cause you to be sick, physically sick, emotionally sick, spiritually sick. It's a horrible thing. All right, let me give you a few more. So I want you to think about tonight. Ask the Lord. Lord, we ask right now corporately that if there's any person we need to forgive, bring it up. If there was a molestation when someone was little, if there's somebody that abused them, I don't know, but bring it up. We've got to get all this under the blood in Jesus' name. Just think about it. Is there any person we need to forgive? Tonight's the night. The next one is this. It says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by the same measure, the same standard you use, it will come back to you. So you're not supposed to judge other people. So this is the realm of vows and judgments and all that stuff. How many of you have ever had something happen and you said, you know what? I will never be like that person. I will never do that. All right, let me tell you why that's a bad idea. Because you're judging that person and you're making a vow to yourself that I'm not going to be like them, but you're judging them. It's interesting because it seems like every time somebody does that, I will never be like that person. It's interesting that they end up like that person. Because the same measure that they're judging them is coming back on them. And not only that, they're making a vow. 
And Jesus said, just let your yes be yes and your no. Don't make vows like that. I will never. You know, don't do that. Just say, Lord, by your grace, help me to not do that. You know, but it's only by your grace that I stand. I'm not going to sit here and be prideful and pass judgment on them and say, I will never do that. I'll never be like that because that's going to set you up for a fall. Pride comes for a fall. There was a man that stood up, and, and um, this is a true story. He stood up at a minister's convention, and one of their ministers had, had committed adultery on their wife and had fallen into sin. And he stood up there and said, I'll never be like so-and-so. It wasn't even the next minister's convention the following year before he fell into adultery. You have to humble yourself and say, it's only by God's grace that I stand. Okay? And don't judge people like that. Another one is bitter judgments. And this is somebody that's really been hurt in life. And so they have a tendency to um, take out on other people the hurt that's in them. For example, let's say that they were abused by a father. And so now they have a tendency, every time they get around a male authority figure, to take it out on them. And they're harsh and rough on them. And that person's never done anything to them. That's bitter judgment. It's like something coming out of that bitterness within them. Another one is perceived rejection. This is somebody that's been hurt in life. And everywhere they go, they really feel like people are rejecting them. If some people are laughing in a corner, they think they're laughing at me. You know, if so, whenever they go into a church somewhere, they think, well, somebody here is probably going to reject me. Just, just wait. It'll happen. It always does. And they think that way. They, it's tormenting. It's horrible. They always think that they're going to be rejected. And every time somebody does the smallest thing, they take it as this devastating rejection in their lives. But we've got to get above this stuff. Let the Lord heal you from this. If you've made vows within yourself, I'll never be like that. You need to ask God to forgive you for those vows. There's a prayer that Carol Arnott prayed that really stuck with me. She said about sowing and reaping. She said, Lord, forgive me for judging. And then she said, let, your, let the blood of Jesus and the cross get in between me and any sowing and reaping. Isn't that powerful? The Lord will forgive you. But don't keep judging people like that. And here's another one about dishonoring parents. There's a lot of ways people can dishonor parents. But one of the ways is this. In your heart, in your heart, you can judge them because of their imperfections. And I learned this through the Toronto Revival myself. I'd never heard this teaching. It was so good. So you can judge your parents in your heart. Being like, well, they don't measure up. They don't do this. They, they, should, have been, they should have treated me different. They weren't right toward me. And you can judge them in your heart. And you'll find yourself later on in life being just like that. It's like, Lord, why am I just like my mom or dad? Why, the very thing that I didn't want to be like, why am I like that? Because you've passed judgment on them in your heart. And you're dishonoring them by doing that. In your heart, you're dishonoring them. And therefore, with the same measure you dishonored them, the same measure is coming back on you. And you're being dishonored now because you're doing the same thing. Does this make sense? It's a sowing and reaping. So in your heart, you need to forgive those like your parents, your grandparents, or whoever it is you feel like has wronged you. I was blessed. I had really good parents, you know, but a lot of people don't. I've learned being in the ministry, there's a lot of people that just do not have good parents and they've been really hurt. But you need to make sure that you say, Lord, forgive me for any unrighteous judgment, any criticism. And the story that Carol Arnott told was so powerful because her mom was so abusive to her. 
But then she found out later after God taught her all this that her mom was so terribly abused growing up. And that's why she turned out like she did. It's easier to have patience with people when you understand that they themselves have been through. That's why they are, they are the way they are for a reason. You understand? But forgive and don't judge. Does this make sense? I hope I'm not flying over people's head with this. Okay. You reap what you sow. So make sure that you don't judge and criticize. The last couple ones is this. The powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 42, 7. Deep calling the deep. The sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have rolled over me. We've got to get to a place of deep calling to deep. How many of you guys can say, Pastor Scott, I've experienced deep calling to deep. I've experienced the waves and, and the, the waves of God's presence. As I've maybe been soaking His presence, I've experienced His waves of power and presence sweep over me. How many of you guys can say that? Some of you can. You've experienced God's presence washing over you. Okay. Let me encourage you that that should be common. If you can find a place where you can soak in God's presence and quit rushing things, even at church, the people, they get the quick dip. They get the prayer. Boom. Then they bounce right back up and they're running around. Why not soak in the Lord a little bit? In your personal prayer time, why not soak and just talk quietly to Him but soak in His presence? I promise you that if you'll do that, you'll find that deep is calling to deep. And you'll find the waves of His presence washing over you like a river. And it, why is that important? Because in the soaking presence of the Lord, intimate with Him, is where a lot of inner healing will take place. God will show you His love for you. He'll show you the wounded places in you that needs to be healed. He'll show you why you're not healed. He'll show you the people you need to forgive. He'll show you the things you need to change. Are y'all hearing me? This is an important place with God. It's his operating table. It's the place that he'll cut out of you the things that needs to go. So how many of you guys are willing to say, Pastor Scott, now, now that you teach on this, I'm going to soak a little bit more in the Lord and listen to his voice and be more intimate with him. There's something about that. Catherine Coleman said, that's the treasure of heaven. She said, that's the place where I found the presence of God. Benny Hinn said, that's the place of great anointing. Those that have had some of the greatest anointings have been those that knew how to soak in the presence of God and not rush out of it. And the last two is this, the deep consecration and communion. Leviticus 6.18 says, Every male among the sons of Aaron may eat of the sacrifice. It is a permanent ordinance throughout all generations. That means it's standing today. From the offerings by fire to the Lord, whoever touches them will become holy. Isn't that powerful? Did you know the Lord's Supper today has the power to help sanctify you, consecrate you? The power of communion, it has the power to do a deep consecration in you. That's why God has been laying on my heart for us to take time in communion as a church and to pray about these specific areas and bury communion down into those specific areas so that God can consecrate us and take us deeper in holiness. Because it says in the scriptural pattern here that wherever that that sacrifice touches will become holy. And I'm telling you, there's a deep holiness that God is doing in people. And if you'll keep going after God with it, and you'll keep letting Him consecrate you, you're going to find yourself going deeper in His presence. Let the blood of Jesus, 
the power of the Lord's Supper do a deep consecration in you. If you had a stubborn area in your life with lust, if you've had a stubborn area about something else, why not get alone with God and say, Lord, I'm going to bury this communion down into this place and I'm going to believe you to consecrate that area inside of me and change me. Because Jesus was pierced for any rebellion in me and he was bruised for any iniquity in me. And so I'm going to believe that when the body and blood of the Lord is applied to that area of my life, that I'm going to be a different person. Wouldn't that be something? And the last one is this. Submit to the Lordship of Christ in every area. Resist the devil and he'll flee. You know, there's a scripture in James 4, 7 we quote all the time. Resist the devil and he'll flee. But did you know the first part says submit to God? So let me give you the scenario here, and I close with this, that you have to submit every area to Jesus Christ. Did you know that there's a lot of Christians out there that they say Jesus is the Lord of my life, but in actual fact, there's only probably one or two little minor places that Jesus is actually Lord over their life. They run their own life. They live their own life. They make their own decisions. They do their own thing. And they wonder why they get in a mess all the time. Let me give you some advice. Take every area of your life, I mean every dream, every aspiration, every part of your emotions, your affections, your desires, anything that's in your life in the way of entertainment, every relationship, and surrender every bit of it. And you have to do this. You can't just say, well, it'll just happen because I'm a Christian. No, you have to do this. You have to go before the Lord and say, Jesus, I'm asking you to sit enthroned over these areas in my life, that you will take lordship and headship over these areas, that I will be totally crucified with you, and that you will run my life. Where you go, I'll go. Where you want me to say, I'll say. If you tell me to get this out of my life, I'll get it out. And you really surrender. You submit every area of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you watch as your life doesn't start coming more and more hidden with God in Christ. That your life doesn't become different because now there's a change because now Jesus has a Lordship there. Whereas he didn't before. You were just doing your own thing. This is the realm... Well, you know, they use the example about, well, the devil shows up and all of a sudden he sees the big brother behind you, Jesus behind you. You guys have heard that example before. This, what I'm talking about, is the actual realm where that happens. Where Satan may attack you, but every area of your life has been truly surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. And so now the Lord is going to defend his territory. Does that make sense? It's no longer your territory you're fighting the devil about. Now you've surrendered it to Jesus and now it's his territory. And he'll defend it. So tonight I want to take a few minutes. I'm going to pray with everybody who wants prayer. But I want you to forgive anybody you need to forgive. I want you to look on that list. Is there any inner vows? Now listen to me. Don't pack up too quick. I want you to hear me. Is there any inner vows? I'll never be like that person. Is there any area of bitter judgments? Do you go around perceiving rejection? Have you dishonored your parents in any way? I want you tonight to really get this under the blood. Deal with this stuff. Forgive. Get forgiven. Get washed. And you watch as you do this tonight. And the Holy Spirit touches you. Soak in the Holy Spirit. Get your mind focused on Him. Whenever you're soaking with the Lord, the many times in my personal prayer time, as I'm laying back and just soaking in God's presence, I'm still praying and talking to Him, but I'm really quiet and I'm listening 
and I'm just soaking in his presence. It's different than than walking around and just saying everything that's on your mind. I do that too, but I'm saying there's a difference. There's a time to soak and to be more quiet and to listen more. You can still talk, but listen more and, and just focus on his presence and ask him, say, Holy Spirit, show me. Is there anything you need to show me today? And that's where deep calls to deep. In those places, in my own personal prayer life, I've had times where I could barely get up off the ground pinned to the glory. I've had many, many times like that. Many times feeling waves of God's presence. Why? Because I'm a preacher? No. Why? Because I'm spiritual or something? No. Just because I learned to just be quiet and sit still. He wants to do that with everybody. We've just got to make ourselves available. Too many people rush through it. Too many people have a religious ritual that they go through every day. Well, this is what I do. They can tell you exactly, A, B, C, and D, I do the same thing. And don't get me wrong, I have a very similar pattern in my personal prayer life too, but I mean, there's got to be life in it. There's got to be a relationship. Not just going through the motions. So, Bozak, if you can just turn off recordings and maybe put on some worship for me. And I want everybody just to spend some time praying for men. Will you guys do that? How many of you want to go deeper? Man, the presence of God is deeper here tonight. But I don't want it to just be in church. I want it to be in your home. I want it to be in your prayer life. I want it to be something that you're, you're experiencing.